So far, about 175 people have ridden motorcycles on epic adventures in exotic locations around the world. And when they arrived at the end of their journey, they swung their leg off one last time and walked away. They left their motorcycles behind. But that was the point right from the start. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets, motobreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. I'm Tom Metema, and I live in Poolsville, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., and I am a co-founder of Rally for Rangers. Welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Great to be back. Good to talk to you again. You have been busy since the last time we talked. We have been very busy, even through COVID. Even through, um, through COVID. the pandemic, even through COVID. The, wow. the COVID, COVID rally was one of the most memorable, I think. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, we've been expanding out into places like Bhutan and, and Peru and covering more of Mongolia, doing a documentary film working on um, a, a, tr- a local project in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, tons of stuff going on. It's super exciting. 2023 is going to be our biggest year yet. Really? And on top of this, you've got a full-time job that you work at. Yeah, that's right. Yep, that's still part of it. You know, still work for the National Park Service and Rally for Rangers is an all-volunteer effort, you know, of mine and my, my partner, Wesley, the co-founder as well. He also has a full-time business and he does this, again, all-volunteer. So we continue to make it happen uh, with volunteer hours. And we're going to get into what Rally for Rangers is, but what keeps you going on this? I mean, this has got to take up a lot of your time. It does. You know, that, then that, that, that slogan, I don't know who came up with the saying, but it's, it's not what I do for a living. It's what I live to do. And that really hits home for me with Rally for Rangers. Like when I discovered this in 2014, when I was invited on that first rally on short notice, this combination of supporting uh, park rangers, you know, I've been a park ranger 30 plus years and supporting park rangers around the world with motorcycling and international travel, putting all those things together. I mean, I have been all in from the moment I heard the words. I remember where I was sitting when I was talking to the the organizers way back when. And little did we know, you know, that it wasn't just a one-time thing, that it would become, you know, a, a take on a life of its own. 
Um, but my passion for it today is just as strong as it was in May of 2014 when I first heard, you know, the words uh, Rally for Rangers. So um, really excited to just keep it going and keep it growing. Well, Rally for Rangers is all about motorcycles, but for you, where are motorcycles? Um, for me, I am about uh, motorcycles, bicycles, skiing. Um, you know, I am, I'm an outdoorsman for sure. I'm an, I'm an adventurist. I, you know, I love the, historically mountaineering and climbing and hiking. And um, my, my first outdoor passion is alpine skiing. That is still something that I'm uh, just getting ready to head to Colorado tomorrow for a few days with some of my Rally for Rangers buddies uh, because of the film premiere that's happening in Golden, Colorado. I'm going to take advantage of that. But the 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 F800 GS is in the garage and the temperatures are inching up here and uh, and I'll ride any time of the year, but certainly it's getting closer to riding season now. So that um, that off-road passion in particular, you know, and I think, again, we talked about this before, but I was a road guy before. I had a, a Sportster to start with and then the BMW R1200C, the cruiser, uh, and when I was in California and it wasn't until Rally for Rangers came along that I discovered, you know, adventure riding and off-road riding. And now that's that's what I try to do as much as I possibly can um, on the GS and whatever other bike I can beg, borrow, or steal. <laughs> okay, so what is Rally for Rangers? Rally for Rangers is adventure philanthropy. That is, uh, you know, I've kind of started to use that term. I'm not sure if it's being used elsewhere, but it is truly uh, adventure philanthropy. And it is about equipping the world's park rangers with the tools they need to effectively combat poaching, number one, because it's such a scourge around the world, protect endangered species, cultural resources, you know, that are being stolen or, or, or pinched or taken, search and rescue, um, you know, fire prevention, all of those things can be done and should be done in many cases and need to be done on two wheels. So we primarily provide motorcycles as a tool for rangers around the world to conduct their patrols, to do their, again, their work around anti-poaching and other things. And that's, you know, rangers in Africa, rangers in Australia, rangers in, in Asia, rangers in South America, um, use motorcycles, not exclusively, but primarily as a tool for, for reconnaissance and for, for anti-poaching and things like that. So we know they're underfunded in so many cases. And, uh, and so we have the opportunity through a cohort of volunteers who sign up year, year after year to raise the funds, to purchase a bike in country, wherever we're going, we source the bikes locally, whether it be Mongolia or Nepal or Peru or Argentina, we buy the bikes in that country, all the same small displacement bikes, usually a 125 to a 200 CC bike that they want. And then we, we adventure rally on that for 10 days or so, give, putting the bikes through their paces, going to visit the parks and the rangers where they live and where they work. And at the end of that 10-day rally, that motorcycle that each one of us purchased is handed over in a, in a ceremony to a park ranger. And that is by far the most moving part of a very moving experience uh, is changing that ranger's life, you know, one motorcycle at a time by getting them a more reliable tool to do their work. And it's important to note that they're, we're not introducing new tools to places where they're not already being used. We're not replacing um, horses with motorcycles. We're replacing old, outdated, and underperforming motorcycles with better ones, um, and ones that are, are easier for them to maintain. Can be can be go for longer distances, can go faster, and are just a better tool for the job. And uh, not introducing them into places where they don't already exist. So that's what Rally for Rangers is about. And we're at I want to say I'm, I meant to count this up before we talked. 175 motorcycles now, I think, donated um, in 
five to six different countries around the world and 30 more in the hopper for this year in Namibia for the first time to Africa mm-hmm. and back to back to Mongolia for the eighth or ninth time. As far as your involvement goes, I know you got involved near the start. So and just quickly cover that, the starting story. I mean, exactly how did Rally for Rangers kick off to begin with? Yeah, our, the, the parent organization is the Mongol Ecology Center, and that's a nonprofit that operates in Mongolia to help them develop their parks sustainably. It's important to remember that Mongolia only started you know, being a democracy in 1992 with the, with the breakdown of the Soviet Union. They got their independence and they got their own democracy. And so their national parks, you know, in many ways just started. Their national park system just started in 1982. Ours began in 1872 here in the U.S., right? So they have a lot to, to learn um, and a lot to share in terms of their parks. So the Mongol Ecology Center is one of the primary NGOs in Mongolia working with the parks. And so they leverage a lot of retired park service knowledge, national park service knowledge from the U.S. and probably from Canada too, because there's a long history there of national parks to help them build and and build sustainable development in their national parks. And so one of these retired park rangers, Robert McIntosh, Bob, uh, we call him Mac. Uh, He's from Boston area, longtime park national park service ranger and, and leader. And so he signed on with the Mongol Ecology Center to help their parks. And they were visiting uh, Lake Havsgol National Park in northern Mongolia in 2013 in the summertime. And so it was Macintosh, it was Ono Baku, who was the founder of the Mongol Ecology Center, and Ono's husband, Wesley, who is now, uh, again, my partner in this work. And the three of them were working with the chief ranger on the shores of Lake Havsgol National Park. And they had maps out and they were talking again about sustainable development option, trail building, and all the ways to make this gem of a park um, sustainable in the long term. And during the course of that conversation that day, somebody drove past them, right past the signs that say, don't drive to the beach. You know, they drove right down past them to the water. And so that ranger had to jump on his motorcycle to go down there and address, you know, the problem and the, the folks that were breaking the law there. And so he got on his really old Chinese bike and held together literally with duct tape and bailing wire. And right there in front of Macintosh, Ono, and Wesley, that bike fell apart. As he was turning it around, he hit the berm on the edge of the road and the motorcycle just nearly disintegrated right there on the spot. So Macintosh, who had seen kind of the lack of support, was himself a motorcyclist historically, and he just looked and and kind of was furious. And he said, I'm coming back here next year. I'm bringing you a motorcycle. And and again, Max retired and it was at that point in time, whatever, he was in his late 60s and he committed in that moment to bring that Ranger a new bike. Just spur of the moment, um, came up with that concept and, and he and Wesley started talking about that idea. And Wesley's like, I, yeah, I think I can do that. How many bikes do we need? And they came back to the States, started talking it up, particularly in the Bay Area. Wesley did with a bunch of his friends. And one year later, 15 of us showed up at Lake Homsgol National Park after a 10-day ride with 15 shiny new Yamaha AG200s for 15 park rangers where that one ranger, you know, had 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 his bike fall apart. And that was the birth of the movement. It was just meant to Mm. be a one-time thing. It was meant to be one bike one time. (laughs) Then it became 15 bikes one time. And then it was like Wesley and I looking at each other with, with Mac and Ono saying, you know, hey, we're onto something here. Let's try it again. So we did it again the next year with 20 bikes. Uh, to, to three other parks in the same region. And we realized 20 was too many. So that's the only time we've ever done 20 bikes, trying to keep 20 adventure riders in a cohesive group and that kind of terrain, you know? 
uh, was a challenge, but here we are. Oh, so it's just managing your group size that, that it yes. was too much, right? Yes, 20 was too much. In, you know, in Mongolia, that accordion effect, uh, you know, with the different skill levels of the riders, with the terrain. And if you've ridden Mongolia, you know that there is no single way anywhere. There are a dozen ways. And so a spider web of trails and roads and single tracks. And so, you know, getting separated from your group, the larger your group is, you know, the, the more challenging in, in that kind of terrain to stay together. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we went back the third time. We took a year off in 2016 because we realized we're on to something. Let's think this through. Let's really look at what, you know, let's build a website. Let's build a presence. Let's, let's, make, let's turn it into something. And so 2017, we went the other way and we went down to 10 bikes <laughs> and we went to the Gobi Desert with 10 really skilled adventure riders and that was a really good number. Um, but that's the number of bikes that the park needed. And we want to try to, you know, again, match the needs of the park, but we've kind of settled on 15. That's our max. And then, uh, if we get below 10, then it's hard to afford the trip, all of the ancillary expenses and all of those things. So 10 to 15 riders per rally is a sweet spot for us. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we've settled on now, regardless of where we go. What may have been missed so far in the way you're describing this is the fact that the participants, the people that get to go with you on this rally, they're the ones that are actually generating the money before you go to pay for everything, including that motorcycle that you're delivering. That's how it works. That's exactly right. It's crowdsourcing. So everyone is a volunteer for Rally for Rangers, and then they have to raise the money to come on the trip. And that includes the purchase of the new bike. So that's eleven dollars to $12,000 total all in, depending on where we're going, plus whatever flights from wherever in the world you're coming you know, to, to and from. And so this, uh, you know, some people can write a check for that. Most of us can't, but we do have a number of people who have come multiple times who have the means and they love it once we've had so many alumni come back again. But yeah, that individual, and that's the scary part. You know, when I talk to, when I go out to rallies, I go to Horizons Unlimited and that whole group I've been many times and, um, or, um, you know, Tour Tech's Dirt Days or any of those events, as soon as you mention the amount, it's immediately terrifying for most people. And I certainly am one of those people. Like, you know, again, I'm a park ranger. I don't have, you know, a massive bank account. I would have to raise money from family and friends. And so same with everybody else. But what we found is that of the 80 or 90 now unique individual volunteers that have come with us since 2014, we've had 100% success from people who have almost nothing of their own money in because they just don't have much to those that have written a check. Everybody has had success. So everyone's been able to raise the money. That's right. That's right. And wow. Because of the collateral, we have this storytelling collateral, you know, and, and people are used to this, right? I've, I liken it to the 10K for cancer or, you know, the AIDS bicycle ride, mm-hmm. or, you know, people do this a lot, right? Where they raise money for a cause and their friends support them because their friends can't go and would never go, but oh my gosh, they're going to live vicariously through their friend on this journey and they're going to help them get there. It's incredibly successful, whether it's, you know, GoFundMe or, you know, whatever the, the fundraising tool is. Um, people have incredible success getting sponsors. And the other thing, you know, I'll put out there for any industry people listening or, or corporate people listening Corporate matching has become a a boon for us because so many corporations now have social responsibility funds and they want to support their employees and what their passions are. And so many times if the employee raises five, the company will match five. 
So they only have to raise 5,000 on their own and the company matches 5,000. This is happening more and more um, in the tech sector and elsewhere. And so we've had a lot of people do company matching as well as, you know, family and friends and fundraising and all of that. So um, there is a big fundraising component to it. And we like that because that grows the community of people that know about us. If you have to raise money from a hundred people, that's a hundred people who are supporting Rally for Rangers who didn't even know about us before. Mm-hmm. And so we can't have a hundred people join us on a rally, but they can join us virtually. They can support us through each one of our riders. So each one of those 15 riders is a force multiplier for Rally for Rangers, right? That reach and the people following them then every day on the social media. And like, it's really fun and really, really purposeful. And so again, that adventure philanthropy, the people who are funding it, sometimes they get their own kind of little, you know, escape into adventure through their friend who's on a motorcycle somewhere in the wilds of Mongolia. I know we talked about it before. And of course, I think it's probably one of the questions you you get asked the most would be, why not just give the money? Yeah, that's right. And, and because it wouldn't work, you know, we, we, you see that kind of day in and day out. If you just go to somebody hat in hand and say, you know, Hey, can you donate? We're going to, you know, buy these guys, new motorcycles. We would never be able to raise $150,000, um, you know, for, for all of this or whatever the cost is just by asking for cash. It's participation. Mm-hmm. And that, that, and that's where adventure philanthropy comes in. And that's why the 10 K for cancer works because you're doing something. You're, you're committing your own volunteer time, your own vacation time, in this case, two weeks to go on one of these trips. And people are inspired by that. And so where they may have given you $10, you know, if you just ask for a handout, when you tell them what you're doing and how you're doing it, those numbers multiply. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's a proven kind of fundraising mechanism, you know, the world over that participatory element is hugely successful. And, and so that's a big part of it. Um, and also on the receiving end, the Rangers, then they don't just have a delivery of bikes that show up. They have a group of 15 people, maybe somebody's from Israel somebody from Australia, eight people from the United States, somebody from Canada just rode in to my camp in the middle of Mongolia and came halfway around the world uh, to give me this gift and this tool. That in and of itself, you know, we get media reports in Mongolia and Nepal, where else, right? That spreads the word. Look at what these Americans and others came to do. Um, it shows value for those public lands that we value their public lands and, and, and they should value them too. So there's a lot of messaging you know, that goes into showing up as well as, and not just sending, you know, bikes over there, shipping them over there. You know, if you want to look at this very cynically, you, you see a bunch of people that are kind of going on vacation but yes, they're going on an adventure, but that's what drives the whole thing is the fact that somebody is going to go and do an adventure to raise money and, and, and I ultimately bring this motorcycle to these places that need it. I mean, I think it has to be, in my mind, one of the most amazing combinations of, of adventure and fundraising. And I love your term, adventure and philanthropy. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. And that, that's all we hear that, you know, it's not that infrequent where somebody, you know, says they asked a friend and the friend's like, I'm not funding your vacation. And it's, you know, it, 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 it really bums me out that that's the, that that's the perspective, you know, that some people carry that they don't see the spirit and intent of the work. Some of that's jealousy, right? Oh, <laughs> I can't course. do it. I can't <laughs> do it myself. So you're not going to do it. Um, some of it is they maybe just don't have all the background and information. We haven't been able to have an in-depth conversation about it. And that's kind of where, you know, the documenting it and the film and the storytelling and stuff helps 
kind of explain and show the impact that people are having. And so, yeah, so fortunately that is few and far between, but it is a thing. And it's also a thing that it, many, many people are uncomfortable asking for money. And so I get that. And that's a barrier that's going to keep some people from attending. And I, that's that's fine. That that I totally get it. Um, but those that have broken through that discomfort have done it again and again because they see not only their fun, but the people that gave them money are having fun, too. You know, they're really enjoying the, the, the whole project. And so mm-hmm. that really breeds on itself. Well, and the person that's participating, they're, they're almost like a messenger, you know, and yes, they're going to enjoy it. But I mean, can you blame somebody for enjoying something that they're doing like that, but they're facilitating the whole project? In other words, if that participant isn't there, you're not getting the money and you're not getting the bike. So it's almost kind of silly to focus in my mind. Um, on the fact that this one person is going to have an enjoyable time doing something. We all have enjoyable times doing things. And and this is the engine that drives Rally for Rangers. That's exactly right. You know, and, and the one thing I don't focus on, you know, which, although it's true, is that there are many periods on these rallies where you're not enjoying yourself. This is not a cruise, right? This is not a glamping trip. You are volunteering to, you know, beat yourself to a pulp in in Mongolia in particular, long days, hard days, crashing, broken bones, like, you know, the disease and sickness. And, you know, it is, it is, it is a true commitment by people um, to put themselves out there and extend themselves. You know, it's again, not like you're loading the bikes onto a cruise ship and just having a vacation up the river and then you deliver the bikes up, up the river. Like that's, you know, mm-hmm. this is in, and again, people will say, yeah, whatever, but man, it is, you know, anybody who's done any level of adventure riding knows uh, 10 days of it straight in a foreign land is no vacation. Uh, it's vacation time you have to take to get there, but it is, it is work. It is volunteer work. It is meaningful and important work. And, uh, but afterwards, uh, you know, all those pain and agonies seem to drift away. Although we talked about before, those are the things you talk about, you know, over drinks later. All I was just thinking, right? it, yeah, <laughs> as you're saying that, I was just thinking, well, what's the problem? That's an adventure. Yeah, That's what people want. Exactly. But exactly. So these countries that you're helping out, though, why why do they need help? Why don't the governments fund their parks? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, we, you know, I talk about this a lot, even here in the United States. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but our own, the most well-funded national park system, most anywhere in the world, and we still need and get hundreds of millions of dollars in philanthropic support in the U.S. national parks every year because congressional money is going into, you know, roads and bridges and infrastructure for 300 million people a year that are traveling to these places. And so, you know, you've got to fund the other things like junior ranger programs and and exhibits and visitor centers and, and so many other things. And you need philanthropic dollars to do that. Well, imagine countries that you know, don't have nearly the, you know, the, the tax base, the GDP, the, the ethos that, that we do. And they barely have enough in many cases, you know, just to keep the parks operating. And where we may have a place, you know, like Yosemite, that's got a, you know, hundreds of rangers, a, a place the same size in Mongolia might have 12. And, you know, covering vast expanses, you know, and so um, the support is just so critical. And you just have to go online and look at some of the challenges and the rangers face in, in Africa and Asia and South America and other places. And you realize pretty quickly that it takes, I mean, this is why the World Wildlife Fund is so successful, National Geographic, so many others, you know, supporting this work in places where it doesn't get the support from the government because they're just too busy just trying to keep the lights on. I think in Mongolia, you said um, it, it's been since 1992, I believe you said that they uh-huh. started their parks. And with parks, I mean, I kind of see it as there's 
sort of two components that come to mind for me is preservation and recreation. One, to preserve the area in its natural state, you know, for future generations and really for the good of the entire planet. The other one is recreation. So we have a place to go and enjoy these wild places in a way we can do that. In Mongolia, do they experience both the recreation and the preservation? Is that the idea of the parks there? Yes, very much so. You know, I think the the challenge there is that the recreation component has overwhelmed the preservation component, particularly in the parks that are close to the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. It's striking uh, when you go to some of the national parks that are within a day's drive, an easy day's drive of the capital city, and if imagine going driving into Yellowstone. And being faced with not 100, not 200, but maybe 300 hotels and lodging units scattered all over the landscape. That's the, the worst of it is where there's been no control over development. And so the recreation portion of it has taken over everything else. And, and then there are some cases where they, very few, by the way, where they default the other way to pure preservation. There are some areas in Patagonia, in uh, Torres del Paine in Chile, where only researchers are allowed. There is uh, Numrug National Park, and this is where we went in 2021, Jim, September, during you know the, the, the height of COVID, we, we did a rally to extreme Eastern Mongolia to Numrug, and they don't have visitors in that national park. It is strictly for research and natural you know, species and biomass. So they, they have both extremes there where they, they have strictly what they call strictly protected areas, which is non-visitation and really just exists for clean water, clean air, species, and that sort of thing. And then they have some that are just absolutely overwrought with development. And that's what the Mongol Ecology Center has been trying to help them figure out is how not to go, not, how not to turn a park into Las Vegas, mm. um, how, to, how, to, how to balance that. You know, where you have places for people to stay, campgrounds and lodgings, but that you are privileging the benefits of the natural resources and cultural resources uh, and then doing the recreation side by side. If some of the places have no visitors, why would they need rangers for those places? Poachers, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because they have illegal visitors. And, you know, I'll tell you, one of the most fascinating things that happened uh, when we were there was actually um, a refugee family from North Korea that had gotten spirited across China and came into that national park because they know that there's, you know, it's a relatively safe haven once they get across the border, but that there's, you know, there's no city there. There's no border there, you know, to speak of, right. There's no, they can sneak across. Um, So, but, but because of poachers and then like things like wildfire, right. Where, and again, often caused by poachers who are there illegally and the campfire catches, you know, and, and so, but most of it is, is anti-poaching. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a fascinating moose species there that looks just like our moose here in North America, but it has the antlers of an elk. <laughs> really? It is wild. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> not the big dish antlers, right? They yeah. have, so anyway, that's the, the, the moose that they have out there, but they have bear out there and, and many other species that they protect. So that was a fascinating trip because we got to go into the park guided by the rangers, some of the only non-researchers allowed. Uh, and again, we kind of stuck to some of the, the basic roads there that they patrol, but so that we can see what, what challenges are they faced with? What, where will they be using the bikes and how will they be using them? And so the Numrug National Park trip was you know, truly extraordinary, not just because, you know, of the whole COVID phenomenon, but because it's such a unique, strictly protected area and so remote. And they also have to deal with illegal logging, apparently. 
Yes, that's exactly right. That's, you know, illegal mining happens frequently. We talked a little bit about ninja mining a couple of years ago on that episode um, where you just have a couple of individuals doing illegal mining and it's, it's referred to as ninja mining. Um, but yes, the illegal logging, the illegal taking of fish. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of reports on my social media feed from my Mongolian ranger friends who are pulling gill nets out of the lakes and streams. And they have the largest species in the world, the taimen, the largest trout species in the world is in Northern Mongolia. And it's a threatened species and it's illegally fished. And so, um, so they're out there on their motorcycles. Yeah, if you wanna see a great shot and go to our Instagram page, you can see where one of the rangers dropped one of our AG200s through the ice into the river on a patrol just maybe a month ago. Um, yeah, I, I think ago. we reposted that, actually. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because they're, again, they're, the poachers are out, you know, every day, all year round for one thing or another. And yeah, sometimes it's wood. Sometimes it's wood to burn, like just to survive. You know, I get it. Uh, and sometimes it's to sell things, right? To get the gallbladder of a, of a goby bear to sell on the black market, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or a snow leopard pelt or, you know, a taman, taman eggs or something. So it's a constant, constant vigilance, constant threat. The land is so vast. They have to cover so much territory to try and, you know, to, to see these things happening. Um, and uh, again, the new bikes are helping them do it. Dealing with poachers, from what I understand, it's extremely dangerous. I mean, I I think uh, I saw there three rangers are killed per week protecting wildlife. Yeah, that's that's, that's right. You know, somewhere. We're going to take a very quick break. I have two things I want to tell you about. We're going to be right back with more. Stay with us. experienced outdoors person will tell you that it's much easier to keep warm than to get warm after you're cold. And that is especially true when it comes to feet. So the trick is not to let them get cold to begin with. One of the things you can do is take frequent breaks, walk around and wiggle your toes and feet. Matter of fact, your whole body moving helps create circulation and you circulate warm blood down to your feet. And of course, the other thing that you need to do long before you get on the bike is wear great socks. Our feet as motorcyclists are in a constant battle to keep warm and cool weather. Everything is against us. The wind, the rain, the mud, the metal foot peg you're standing on, all sapping precious heat from our feet. And that's where Pearly's Possum Socks come in. They are made with a special blend of possum fur and merino wool and knitted into shapes that are specifically for motorcycle riders. Just motorcycle riders. The owner, Duke, he is a motorcyclist. This is why. Now, because the merino wool and possum fur have natural lanolins, They wick away moisture in the fibers. They wick away moisture. They kill bacteria that would otherwise leave your socks stinking. And they keep your feet incredibly warm. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. Whether you ride hard and fast on tight rocky trails or prefer riding fire roads or just cruising down the highway, riding on quality, well-designed foot pegs quite simply changes the ride. And nothing feels better than that feeling of connection and leverage and confidence you get from Sirius foot pegs. IMS Products makes those foot pegs. Sirius pegs that are designed by experts that are themselves riders. The difference is from the 17.4 cast certified stainless steel that they use, the staggered tooth design that they keep your feet in one spot, a solid purchase, without tearing your boots apart, 
the watershed design on the back of the pegs, it makes it almost impossible for mud or debris to cake into them and plug them up. These are the things that IMS Products builds into every foot peg they make. They have a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. Their website, imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. Dealing with poachers, from what I understand, it's extremely dangerous. I mean, I I think uh, I saw there three rangers are killed per week protecting wildlife. Yeah, that's, that's that's right. You know, somewhere around a thousand rangers a year are killed in the line of duty, primarily by poachers and primarily in Africa. It does happen in Asia as well and other places for sure. Uh, the Amazon, um, but it's it's particularly an issue in Africa. And again, because of the nature of the wildlife there, because those rhino horns and those the the ivory and the, those things are so valuable on the black market that people are willing to murder and risk you know their lives in prison um, to make that money. And um, and so unfortunately, it's. You know, there are some organizations out there that are working, you know, the the source and some are working at the other. It's kind of like the drug trade, right? You have the, it's all driven by users. And so if you can make an impact on the user end of things, you can hopefully impact the beginning of it as well and some of the dangers in between. But wildlife trafficking, just like drug trafficking, is an incredibly dangerous proposition. And uh, and that's why you see the rangers, particularly in Africa, heavily armed uh, rangers in southern Nepal, heavily armed um, rangers in Mongolia are not armed. They're not a, they're not a gun culture. So the poachers generally aren't armed either. Um, so that's a little bit different there. Um, and not quite as dangerous in many ways as, you know, Africa and some other places, but yeah, that's one of the stories of our film is, you know, that, uh, again, nearly a thousand rangers a year perish in the line of duty, protecting what belongs really to all of us, right? Mm. That we talked about that, that biodiversity and that, you know, we all have a role to play in, you know, in trying to help protect that. And so that's, uh, that's part of what we're, a big part of what we're, what we're doing. We've actually just launched a new series of products. That's the other thing that's happened since we last talked. We have a web store now and we're, we've started kind of soft launch this poaching sucks campaign. Um, you know, because I drive around and I see bumper stickers on people's cars that say things like cancer sucks. And like, everybody can agree with that, right? Virtually sure. everybody can agree that cancer sucks. And everybody that's not a poacher can agree poaching sucks. And so um, we're going to use that as a tool to hopefully raise a little bit of money too. And just do what we can uh, in our little corner, um, uh, you know, of the market to, to help combat uh, poaching. You know, one thing that I've seen, particularly in, in this film that you've just produced now, but also from before, it seems that in particular with the Mongolian Rangers, there seems to be a real personal connection to what they do. And I don't know, maybe this is with all park rangers. Like, because I, I could picture it as a job for some people. You know, you well, you get a job as a park ranger. And I think that's what I always pictured before. You go and you work for a park ranger. Maybe you don't work there all that long. But for for these Mongolian Rangers in particular they have a passion and, and it's like a lifelong commitment. It's almost a religion for them to go and protect these parks. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jim. The term that I, that we use a lot, or I use a lot is it's a calling. And, you know, some people are called to ministry. Some people are called to this, to that, to whatever. Um, the, the ranger life is often a calling. You have a calling to, to either protect and interpret history and it's the the ties that bind us through cultural history or a call to to protect and advance, you know, sustainable 
uh, natural history. And, and so, and you can see in the film, in, in their faces, in their responses, that, that connection to the land, that it's part of them. They're, they're not apart from it. You know, they are part of it. And it's, and so when something is poached, it's a personal pain to them. It's, it's not some kind of thing off in the distance. It's a, it's, it's part of the fabric that makes up their entire life. You know, Mm -hmm. their family, they live in the landscape and even in Mongolia, more than many other places, they, they live out individually and, and cover this. Then they have a yurt, they have their family there. They have a horse, a motorcycle, maybe a reindeer, and they're responsible for this huge swath of land. There's nobody else around for, for miles and they will collect up sometimes if they have it. And you see that in the film when they're doing some work to combat poaching, they'll, they'll get together, but it's very personal. It's very deep. And we've seen that everywhere we've gone in, you know, the people aren't going to risk their lives because the pay, (laughs) the pay is not what you might get almost anywhere else. We, we joke a lot about getting paid in, in sunsets, Mm-hmm. But there's some truth to that part of the pay, so to speak, not that it should be, but it is because of the nature of the funding and stuff, where you live, what you get to do every day. And so, yeah, they're not doing it for for fame or glory by any stretch and typically not getting those things either. They're doing it because it's a calling and it's a personal passion of theirs. And the film tells that and, and the guys from Fisher Creative who, who, you know, wrote and directed and filmed that just captured so brilliantly um, the passion and connection that those rangers have to the places they protect. You know, it, it's really bizarre to me because, <laughs> you know, if you think of even savings, you know, we think of all of us, we always try and save a little bit of money. And and the whole, the thought process with savings, many people will say, you know, pay yourself first, put your money aside for yourself first. The park is kind of our savings as communities, as countries, as the globe, it's kind of our savings. Yet it's, it really strikes me odd that it's so hard to have anyone put any money to it. And when I say anyone, I mean the governments. You would think this would be something that would be so overly funded that none of this would have to happen. Yeah, I, I love that. I love the way that you just um, kind of told that story and, and where, where, how that means to you. That analogy is really strong. Um, yeah, and not only that, but they're bipartisan. Right? Everybody loves the parks. There isn't yeah. there isn't an anti-park contingent really out there. There's a few pockets, of course, but in size and scale of parks, there's always things like that. But in general, the concept is universally beloved. And so, um, yeah, it is one of those things where it is kind of sometimes hard to, to understand how it's not prioritized over uh, over other things. And that's just, it's a fact uh, the world over. Yeah. I think that in, in my mind, Rally for Rangers is the best thing that I've ever seen as far as a fundraising thing. I, mean, I just love the idea. You get to go on an adventure, you raise money, and you're actually doing uh, some good, some philanthropy while you're doing this. So let's talk about how it works. We did mention that, you know, so you got to go and you got to raise your money. I'm assuming you got you give all the support for that, of telling people how to do it and how to raise the money for it. When it comes to the the event itself, you you call it a rally. Is this a rally? Yeah, it's, it's not a rally in terms of the race, uh, you know, of, of a race. It's a rally um, in in the sense of, you know, bringing a bunch of motorcycles together in one place and, and riding from one from point A to point B over the course of 10 days. But it's also rallying around a cause, rallying for rangers. And so not just the idea of a motorcycle rally and how we traditionally think of that, but we are rallying together. We are rallying people. We're rallying fundraisers. We're rallying volunteers around this idea of supporting rangers. And so it just works on so many levels. Mm. Um, but it's not a traditional rally where we're, again, we have a timed entry and exit from point A to point B. And we definitely have, you know, 
10 stages we're trying to get through, so to speak, you know, campsites each day and things like that. But, but there's speed is not of essence at all. We want to get the bikes there in as good a working condition as possible. We want all of our volunteer riders to arrive in as good a working condition as possible. Um, we want to visit and enjoy parks along the way. We want to see the species in the lands that we're protecting. So, you know, we, we, we do have to cover ground, but that's all, that's all part of it. You know, and you mentioned earlier, why not just send the bikes there? It's also true that we could probably all fly there, pick up the bikes and go straight line from point A to point B in a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Um, But there again, you are not then seeing all the different parks and all the different communities and all the different places that you're impacting. You're not learning about that culture. Um, And so all of those things combined are kind of why we, we call it a rally. And I'm sure that every participant when they returned, and this is another bonus for this, is that they are somebody who is who is talking up the parks and talking up the problems and talking up these things that are happening and and the things the good things that are happening like this of giving these rangers their the the motorcycles to help them do what they do. So so that makes uh, an advocate for you by the time they return, or I, I would should say for you for rally for ranger, but but for the cause for our parks, and I say our parks because even Mongolia parks. That it's all, I'm not, and I think that's uh, that's something that somebody said in this in the movie, which I thought I love that thought process is, is that understanding that this park is connected to everything else. I mean, it always surprises me when people talk about pollution. When we breathe in and out, we're breathing air that circulates the world. It doesn't know any borders, and it's the same as our, as a, as the condition of our planet, right? I mean, to, to yeah. keep it in check. And I know I don't have to tell you this. Uh, now no, I want yeah, to ask you about, right. about the route itself you, know, you just mentioned you, you could you could definitely you know just take the bikes a shorter route this route that you choose each time uh, what is it chosen for and is it meant to be a challenge because you did say it was a challenge you know where, where people you know even get broken bones at times and and go through some seriously stressful um, environments yeah no that's exactly right we have um uh, our uh executive director of the mongol ecology center Bodril, has has an outfit, um, Mongolia Quest. And so he is, a, he is a, a trip organizer and has been very successful. And he they pour over the maps, particularly from Mongolia, because seasonality is critically important. We have, you know, in the, the rally this past September, they had snow, they had rain, they had desert, um, they had flooding, you know, so many elements to contend with. And so making sure that, that you're picking routes and, and that you have the, the navigational capability, like we mentioned in Mongolia, the most challenging by far. Everywhere else we go, we are generally on established trails and roads. Mongolia, there are a limited number of established trails and roads in hundreds of different directions to go. So uh, it's critically important in that case. I'll use Peru as an example. So we did Peru in May uh, of last year, and that was our first time to Peru. And it came up on year seven wonders of the world. Um, raw conversation. I was quite tickled to hear that. <laughs> we, we went from Lima up to Nazca, um, to Cusco, and down to Puerto Maldonado in the Amazon. We could not have accomplished that distance off-road. Wouldn't have been possible for us to see the coastal parks we we saw, and then to see uh, Machu Picchu and the mountain parks, and then to go down and see the Amazon. We couldn't have accomplished that in 10 days off-road. The, the, the trails just wouldn't have existed, and we wouldn't have had the time um, to spend with the rangers. And so we spent the majority of the Peru rally on tarmac and on that road that that y'all were talking about. Talk about twisties for days. That's the reason it came up, because not only is the natural and cultural history, and are you going over 16,000 feet in elevation, but it is nonstop, really nice tarmac and and 
you know, you don't go more than, it feels like a hundred meters without a twisty. So uh, incredibly delightful riding, but very different, completely different than a Mongolia experience, um, you know, in terms of that's almost all off-road and trail-based. So, so the route finding really depends on the objectives of the trip. The host country, what do they want us to see? This in Peru, they were some of the most active hosts that we've ever had. They had rangers with us in vehicles and they would hand us off to the next set of rangers. Each day we would meet a new set of rangers and they would guide us to the next camp. And then we would hand us off to the next set of rangers. That's the only, that's the first time that's ever happened. Usually we have the same person with us the whole time. Mm -hmm. They kept handing us off one to the next. And so they planned it that way. So the bikes that we buy, the routes that we take, uh, oftentimes our hosts will will help us determine that because there's certain things they want us to see and experience. And so that's a big part of the route planning as well. How do you balance adventure with bike health? Because you said you want to get the bikes there one piece. That's the whole point of it. So how yeah. do you be careful <laughs> not to beat the bikes to death while you're delivering them? Yeah, I remember that from 2017 when I was just starting to kind of come into my own as an off-road adventure rider in Mongolia. And I blew out my shocks, I think, in the first two days. And, you know, we just, it was like, you know, I had to remind myself, like, you're not here for a joy ride. Um, yes, I was getting good at riding. I was able to get the bike off the ground if I wanted to, but that's not, you know, why am I bringing a bike that, you know, needs new shocks, right? And so we did replace the shocks before we got there. But so one of the ways that we do that is by full support. So all of our gear, except for what we need for the day, is in support vehicles. So we're not we're not loading down the bikes because that would be another real challenge of covering that terrain and bouncing all day if you've got you know hundreds of pounds of gear on the bike. And so so we we talk a lot more now at the beginning of each rally about why we're here, about who we're volunteering for, that you're representing not only yourself and what country you come from, but also you're representing Rally for Rangers, the Mongol Ecology Center. All of your behavior on this trip, day and night, it reflects as a volunteer this whole purpose and this whole cause. And by making a wrong decision, you could damage the future of this cause. And so the treatment of the bikes is is part of that. And, you know, I, I have to admit to to some damage. You know, I uh, I want to say it was 2015, my worst year by far. Um, I, during lunch, was I'm bored, but I was I needed to do something. So I, I was done eating. So I jumped on my bike and I went along the, the, the shores of this lake. I picked up a fishnet in my rear wheel. Mm. It, de- it delayed us about two hours cutting that net. Um, I didn't see it, right. It was, it was clear. It was on a beach and I just rode right across it and it just wrapped itself up right in the rear axle. So that happened. Um, then I lost my gas cap. I apparently didn't cinch it down after a gas stop and I'm cruising along and all of a sudden I have this smell and I look down and there's a big hole in my tank. Uh Where's my gas cap? Who knows where my gas cap is? There's no way I'm going to find it. So the Rangers being Rangers, they made one for me out of wood. Um, and plugged my tank. And so I finished the rally with a wooden gas cap. And then again, not done yet. On the last day, two hours before the completion of the rally, I went off trail and was cruising across a beautiful, you know, kind of open space. And all of a sudden came upon um, a river cut bank. And so, you know, six foot drop straight down. Um, because on the far slope was sloping bank, but it was green. So to the horizon, everything was the same color. I'd never saw it. 
until I was just about to drop into it. And I locked up and I dropped the bike six feet down on top of myself. Mm. And luckily I didn't break both my wrists and put a huge divot in the gas tank. And so I just, you know, that's just not what you want to happen. Right. And then we all make yeah. mistakes, you know, and those were all honest mistakes. They, you know, I wasn't hot dogging, um, but it happens. And so, you know, so we work really hard. And to that end, Jim, there is a bottle of Chingus gold vodka for the person that doesn't drop their bike the whole route. <laughs> and so Ching, Chingus vodka is really good. If you're into vodka, Chingus vodka is really good. And so we have an incentive, um, the bottle of vodka for anyone who doesn't drop their bike over 10 days. Now that is not an easy task. That's a lot to ask. Yeah, That's a lot to ask. And I made it through 17 and 18 and most of 19, three rallies, four rallies without dropping. And so, as did some other, a couple of others. And until I got to Nepal and then it was all bets were off, I dropped a bunch. But so the goal again is to deliver a clean bike as clean as possible. Well, and you got to expect it's going to happen. It is an adventure. You are riding motorcycles, you know, in, in rough places. So that's right. Yeah. We all understand the, the chances of things getting damaged, but it, as far as maintenance though, like when you drop off these bikes, these are brand new bikes that they couldn't afford. I'm assuming that's the whole point of this. How do they maintain them afterwards? And even how do they fix stuff that might've got damaged, you know, while, while you're delivering them? Yeah. And we, so we make sure that everything's ready when we hand over the bikes, when it comes to delivery day, We've got uh, mechanics with us on every trip, whether it's Yamaha or Honda, whoever we're using, we have mechanics. So that mechanic sits down. It's really fun to see all 15 Rangers gathered around this bike and they are like wrapped attention. It's like Christmas morning and they've unwrapped this new motorcycle and that Yamaha tech is going through everything. Um, and you know, the, the, the AG 200's got this fully encased self-lubricating chain. It's got, you know, this great rack space and all, all these, these bells and whistles, well, bells and whistles may be a little strong for an agricultural bike, but, <laughs> um, but anyway, so we, we train them up on that bike. And again, they ride all the time. They're fixing their old bikes all the time. So they don't have to fix it very much when they get the new bikes, but they know how to put in new plugs. They know how to put on new tires. They know, you know, and, and they have to do that anyway. We're just making longer intervals for a lot of that stuff. And so that, that battery, they had to replace a bunch in the Chinese model. They've got much longer life, those spark plugs, those tires, right? Like that's the, the beauty of also giving them a higher quality machine. And the costs of those parts for those bikes are, are marginally more. They're, they're not exponentially more, you know, for a battery for that bike versus a battery for the old bike and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And they do have a stipend. Each Ranger has a stipend to spend, to maintain, same thing for their horse. They have to shoe their own horses. They have to, you know, take care, feed the horses. Like they're responsible for that. And they get a stipend from the government to help keep up their horse and their motorcycle. And if you didn't take motorcycles for the parks that you're delivering them to, what would they do? They would still be on the machines and, and, you know, kind of doing a lot less of what they're doing now with the same machines they had before. So they might be on horseback a little bit more often covering far less ground. They would be traveling much slower on the machines that they were on that didn't have the suspension, didn't have the engine to cover more ground. Mm -hmm. We heard from one of the spouses, this was a totally unintended consequence that I never thought of, but she was so grateful because her husband is done with his patrol a full day sooner than he used to be. So he can get back home more quickly, spend more time with his family because he can cover the same ground um, in less amount of time. 
with wow. the the new motorcycle. I never thought of that. Because it's a better suspension and more Much, reliable. Yeah, better suspension, more reliable, better engine, better everything. Wow. Um, and so the the bikes they had were just kind of seated tooling around, you know, 15, 20 clicks an hour. Well, we we have to kind of train them how to stand on a bike because they don't often do that over there to cover more ground, more swiftly, better visibility. So we actually do some riding training sometimes as well to help them get used to a little bit higher performance machine. These aren't Tenere's and Africa Twins. No, that's exactly right. They're in, and that's, again, where the expense, the logistics, like they would just not be the right tool for the job. It's a Yamaha AG200. It's a Yamaha XTZ125. It's a, a Beta Argentina 2.0. Um, the Honda XR150, uh, I think it was, in Peru. I think we're going to have the same Honda XR in Namibia. In Namibia. Um, so again, whatever we can find, we love the Yamaha AG200. We just love it. And it just for the Rangers, for the work they do, and they have them in South America, they have them in Africa, but the import taxes, uh, once you get outside of Asia, just make it cost prohibitive for us. So we, we have to balance that out, right? We can't expect people to raise, you know, too terribly much more than we're already asking. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we, we look at bikes that are affordable, but still a good bit better than what they're doing now. And interesting, speaking of Namibia, just real quick, Jim. So that's the first time that we are giving motorcycles to a non-government entity. We are, we are supporting a community ranger project. So obviously, like you talked about before, how the air and the water don't, don't obey the boundaries of the park. Well, neither do the wildlife. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the park has really good patrols inside, but the poachers get the animals and they lure them outside. They bait them and lure them out and then poach them on the outside. So this, this place uh, that we're heading in Namibia has a community ranger project where community members volunteer their time to do their own patrols around the boundaries of the park on the outside where the rangers have no authority. And so they're kind of deputized by the local community and they help um, to do anti-poaching work on the boundaries of the park. So we'll be donating 15 bikes to a community ranger project in Namibia. Uh, that'll be a first time, not only in Africa, but also a first time supporting a community ranger project, which I love the concept of that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. You get feedback from the rangers that you've given motorcycles to. I mean, you guys have given away, like you said, there's a lot of bikes you've given away already. You've helped a lot of parks increase their patrols and make their patrols more efficient. And you've got feedback from them. What kind of things do you hear? Like, what kind of change does it make? You just mentioned that one, for instance, the the wife that, that said um, her husband comes back a day sooner. What other kinds of things do you hear the difference that that motorcycle makes for them? Yeah, you bet. And that's one of the things you hear in the film too, um, you know, where the ranger talks about, you know, his ability to to do his work more efficiently and more effectively. One, you know, one of the stories we tell in the film too is about the motorcycles that were burned in Northern Mongolia by poachers because those patrols were having an impact on their poaching activity. And so again, they're not necessarily going to, like you might find in another country, murder the rangers, but they will destroy their motorcycle, their brand new motorcycles. And, you know, so we've, we've heard a lot of stories uh, of, of them finding more and really not just finding, but now that these new tools are out there, the poachers are aware of it. And so they, the activity is reduced. They're, they're not going into the same areas because they know their likelihood of success is less. And so we, you know, we've heard about, you know, reductions in the amount of poaching that's happening in places like some of these remote Mongolia locations, Nepal and, and places like that. And so we, we see the impact on the ground through what we hear from the rangers. And they're asking us to come back again and again. We've, we've been hearing from Peru actively. You know, it's a big country. They have a lot of parks and they need more than just 15 bikes. And so they've been 
and recruiting us to come back. And we definitely will go back again. And that's another indication of success, you know, is that, hey, we we need more of this. They they can't believe that it came true and that we brought them bikes and, and they need more of it. Down there, you know, it's interesting in Patagonia too, where it's, there's not quite as much poaching in, in like in Argentina, for example, but fire prevention. Um, fire does not naturally occur in Patagonia. It only occurs if humans get involved because the lightning strikes in Patagonia generally are cloud to cloud, not cloud to ground. So you don't get natural start lightning fires like we do all over in the U.S. and particularly in the West. Mm-hmm. So a wildfire is devastating in Patagonia because the plants aren't resilient to it. They're not designed for it. But like when you say wildfire, have- you mean a fire started by people. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. Or any fire, you know, it's, yeah, a, a fire started by people down there is about the only kind of fire that you're going to have. So unlike here where a giant sequoia, for example, needs fire to propagate and advance, it needs fire. It's, it's a fire friendly species. Um, they have no fire friendly species in Patagonia. So quick response to remote locations to stamp out a fire or to get communications going. Um, oftentimes a motorcycle can help with that. So again, it's not just poaching activity. There's, there's a lot of things that, that go on in these patrols that are beyond just poaching. And, um, but that one always jumps out at me because I lived in California for so long and fire is such a big part of life that I understand the value, um, you know, of present, of preventing fires in, in Patagonia. It must be for, as a participant, immensely satisfying because afterwards when you've dropped the bike off and you're done your adventure and you're back home to hear these stories, and I'm sure they, they follow and, and stay connected and hear the stories of how it continues to help day after day. I mean, it's not just the delivery of the bike. It's a continuous thing after that until the bike is no longer. Yeah, that's right. And it's community. You know, that's the thing. Like I said at the beginning, I'm heading to Colorado tomorrow. And we have now, I think, five alumni in the Denver area, and we're all going to get together. You know, we all went on different rallies, and but we all had the same experience. We all looked at Ranger in the eye, handed them the keys to a new motorcycle, gave them a big hug, like cried together. Um, it's life-changing. And we almost have so many alumni now applying to come back on rallies that, you know, we're running out of room for new folks, and that's not good. We need new, fresh fresh blood. So we're having to to think about limiting the number of alumni that come on any given rally because people are coming again and again. Some people will come twice in one year because once you get a taste of it and you, you have that experience, it's moving and emotional. And again, I know we keep referencing the new documentary film, but you'll see that as the, as we interview the riders, um, the, the passion they feel, the impact on their lives and them personally, it's pretty extraordinary. And so it's, it's been really fun to be part of that growing community of volunteer adventure philanthropists, you know, it's, um, and many more to come. How much room is there for more motorcycles? I mean, will there be a saturation point where everyone has motorcycles and your job is done? Uh, there won't be. And the reason for that is because the, the bikes that we brought to Mongolia in 2014 are nearing the end of their useful life. And so we actually brought them some new ones just this past year. It's the first time we've returned to where we started because they use them so heavily, so many tens and hundreds of thousands of kilometers um, that they themselves become tired and need to be replaced. And we still haven't hit many of the parks in Mongolia alone, let alone Africa and so many other places. So there are thousands of rangers out there yet needing motorcycles. We've had inquiries from Cambodia, from Central America, from places in Africa. And we're just going to have to space it out, you know, and uh, continue to, to add new locations. But there, there is no end to providing tools. Now, there may be a shift, right? We may be shifting 
and I hope we do shift before too long towards some electric choices. We, we know that, that Cake has an anti-poaching bike that they've been working with uh, some South African rangers on. And that idea of placing batteries and charging stations out in the wilderness and silently doing anti-poaching work. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's there's opportunities there. So so growth, you know, growth in the United States and working with indigenous communities here. So there there are still many places for us to reach um, and also new ways of doing it, I think, ahead of us sometime. Are there any examples of, of government looking at the delivery of these bikes and how successful they've been in helping them, you know, reduce poaching and help them do their job in parks where they're saying, OK, we'll find the money for this? Um, the only example is one I think I referenced last time where actually the German Development Bank saw what was happening in Mongolia and they purchased 60 motorcycles and gave them to the, the government of Mongolia, but not the government of Mongolia themselves seeing that and purchasing them themselves. The, their money issues are the same as they've, you know, they've ever been. So mm. to, to my knowledge, it hasn't leveraged a government to make their own investment in motorcycles. Um, and that could have happened and we just aren't aware of it because we're not certainly hearing everything, but I've not heard anything anecdotally about a government stepping up, um, on its own to, to double the impact, you know, or, or add to it or something. We do have people sending government officials on some of the rallies. You'll see the vice president of Parks Argentina in the film. And we've had some folks from the Mongolian government, um, on those rallies and Petrovis, the, the, one of the largest petroleum provider in Mongolia, uh, their CEO and some of their staff came on our 2021 rally. They provided all the fuel for all the rallies, um, Mm -hmm. which is a huge cost savings for us as well. So there's that kind of social impact happening in country that didn't happen before. So you have, you know, not just the government in the country, but you also have some industry in the, in the country like Mongolia that is seeing, Hey, this is, they happen to be motorcycle riders and they happen to, you know, be CEOs of these impactful organizations and so they're starting to support the work also. So that's been a really compelling change. These countries like like Argentina, for instance, that you're supplying the bikes to, is it that the government can't afford to do it or is it a political thing? Um, I think that it's, it's all choices. It's all priorities. You know, every country has their own economic problems, including our own here in the United States. Like they're, you know, we don't have enough money to fund every bridge repair that's necessary in every national park. And so, and the, you know, the more you get out to, to some of these other countries, they're just trying to fund, you know, some of the basic infrastructure and they see this kind of thing as a nice to have, not a must have, whereas we see it as a must have. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we can come together. This, right. That's where, that's why philanthropy has a role. If everybody had the ability to fund and support all the things that were important from, you know, childhood illiteracy to, to the AIDS, you know, epidemic to, uh, everything else, right? We would we would be good, but people have to prioritize. And in many many countries that aren't here in North America, the priority for national parks is not at the level that it is here. And so we're trying to fill that gap. Where you know there's a gap in funding there, and we're we're trying to help fill it. Mm-hmm. Governments generally move slowly with things, and this is one of those few areas where we can we can sort of take up the slack, you know, and and get things going regardless of what the government is doing, you know? So if they're deciding not to fund something like that, what a great way to sort of bypass the government's ineptitude, if you want to call it that. Yeah, that's right. You know, and again, I, you know, I as a as, you know, lifelong government employee, not lifelong, but career-long government employee, I understand the push-pull 
And I understand that there's not money for everything that everybody you know wants to do or, or can afford to do. So we're we're just here to to again, it's it, it's obviously something that's been working, something that's being welcomed in these countries and lots of countries asking for it. And so well, we're just going to fill that need wherever we can. What's it take to get on the the rally for Rangers? So if somebody wants to go, do you have to like pass a test or something? You got to meet a criteria. Yeah, well, a couple of things there. Um, you know, our website is where the applications are, rallyforrangers.org. And so people apply to ride and then we vet the riders based on their applications, their their riding resume, so to speak. We ask for for video evidence wherever possible. In this day and age, it's almost impossible for somebody not to have some video evidence <laughs> of their riding. Because <laughs> yes. certainly, you know, early in in the rally's history, you know, we had some challenges with folks who weren't ready. I was I was one who counted myself as not ready that first year. And that can really create, you know, challenges for for cohesiveness, for sticking together, for safety. So um so people have to apply to volunteer and ride with us. And they have to demonstrate, you know, the capacity to raise the funds to demonstrate, you know, the ability to ride where we're going. And so there are some who will will only gravitate towards places like Peru, where they know they're going to be on tarmac most of the time and and where kind of more traditional, you know, adventure riding maybe is is plenty good enough. And then play, when we go to Mongolia, anytime I talk to somebody in Mongolia, I don't want to say I'm trying to talk them out of it, but I make sure there is no stone unturned, you know, that they are aware of all the challenges of riding over there, all the types of things they are going to have to train for. You have to be competent in sand, in deep river crossings, in rocks, in uphill, in downhill, in ruts, in, in getting lost, in wayfinding. Like, you just have to be a super competent adventure off-road rider, you know, to ride in places like Mongolia. So we do that. We do interviews, you know, with each with each volunteer candidate and kind of talk it through with them. And certainly there are those we have denied. The vast majority of people, you know, have we've certainly accepted. And uh and so it's it's all done through an application process. And then, and then of course they have to like I said, they have to demonstrate the fundraising. One thing I will share here for the first time ever, Jim, is that we are going to launch a sweepstakes to give away uh, participation on a rally. We see a lot of great, successful sweepstakes giving away motorcycles mm-hmm. and uh, really successful and, and just a great way to raise funds for a nonprofit. But what do we have? We're not going to get an AG200 over here to give away. So we can give away a $15,000 experience to join us on a rally, um, flights included, motorcycle included, all of your in-country expenses included, um, to come to Mongolia, come to Peru, wherever we're going in 2024, the winner will have their choice of location. And we're going to launch the sweepstakes in March and carry it through later uh, in the year. And um, just really try to do, number one, some, some good fundraising, but also give people who want this experience the opportunity. Um, if, if they just don't think there's any way they could otherwise do it. They still have to take two weeks off of work and we're not covering their salary, but, uh, <laughs> but we're going to give away a rally experience for the first time. And, wow, that's uh, you know, cool. and just, yeah, it should be a really exciting and it'll help grow awareness of us. It'll help us raise some funds and it'll give somebody an extraordinary opportunity. And you don't have to be a rider because we have a support team. So if you want to volunteer to ride in a chase vehicle and have somebody else ride the motorcycle that you're donating, the mechanics will love you. Cause they'll get to ride every day oh. and you can be in a support vehicle. So, and you can also be anywhere in the world. You don't have to, you know, to take possession of a motorcycle, you kind of need to be, you know, in, in North America, but 
If you're in Australia, if you're in the UK, if you're in Asia, you want to buy a ticket, we'll fly you in from wherever you live and you can have this incredible experience. You will be volunteering. You will be working your ass off. You're not winning a vacation. We talked about that already, right? (laughs) Um, But so that's another way now that people will be able to join us is through our, our upcoming sweepstakes. So we're excited about that. Wow. That's, that's really neat. Uh, Tom, what do you get? How much do you get paid to do this? Uh, zero dollars. Sorry, zero dollars? Yeah. Zero dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Wesley and I are both full-time volunteers. We've, this whole thing has happened through the generosity and goodwill of volunteerism. It's a full-time zero paycheck for you. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, you, you mentioned that your trips that you're doing each year, you said, you said multiple trips. How many trips is Rally for Rangers doing each year? We've been doing two international trips a year. We did three last year because COVID got in the way, you know, in 2021. We only did one trip. That was the uh, the Mongolia trip uh, during COVID. And so we punted on Bhutan because Bhutan shut down. They closed their borders. They closed their country, you know, for more than a year. And so we pushed that one off. And then we're finally able to get into Bhutan in uh, August, September of this year. They closed because of COVID. Yes, correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. They shut down. Uh, and so did Mongolia and many other places. We were, you know, the Mongolia rally in 21 was really sketchy. We almost didn't get the bikes because they couldn't travel their normal route. They had to come by train from Japan and the bikes got there into Mongolia the same day we all flew in. Oh, wow. It was that close to <laughs> not close. having 15 bikes to jump on the next day. You know, It, it would have been 15 um, horses that you'd be riding. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, so, you know, in that trip, by the way, Jim, I tested positive for COVID the night before leaving and was eight, was asymptomatic and, uh, I knew it wasn't right. So I packed up, I went to the airport and I paid for the one hour rapid, um, PCR test, tested negative and got on the plane and went to Mongolia. Um, that's the kind of trip that was for everybody. You know, we tested a bunch of times when we were over there, 100%, you know, success, on the testing throughout the, that trip. And it was just remarkable that we were able to travel halfway around the world, you know, and pull that off. So, so yeah, so Peru was in May uh, then of last year and then Bhutan and Mongolia. Um, so three rallies in 2022, which was a lot. And so we're really trying to stick to two this year. It's Namibia and Mongolia. And then the difference, as I mentioned, I've alluded to it a couple of times. We're hoping to do a domestic uh, USA based uh, rally for Rangers weekends only in supporting of tribal parks. So we're talking to the Navajo tribe around Monument Valley and doing a rally to support Navajo tribal parks. And I'm in conversation with the Ogallala Sioux in uh, North, I'm sorry, South Dakota um, about supporting tribal parks in the Black Hills region. And so that would be much different. It wouldn't be twelve, fifteen thousand $15,000. You know, it would be a much lower uh, buy-in fundraising and just a weekend, like a three-day weekend with riding through some of those areas to raise money to support uh, tribal parks, not with 15 motorcycles either. They need night vision equipment. They need chainsaws. They need binoculars. They need, you know, GPS units. We can support them in so many ways. And we can raise the money using motorcycles, but we don't have to donate 15 motorcycles. We can give them many of the tools they need. Mm. So the U.S. model will be really different and really exciting because people who who can't take two weeks off work, who can't raise $12,000, they can probably take a long weekend or a week, come to North to South Dakota, um, you know, for a couple thousand dollar buy-in and, and have an incredible experience and meet the rangers there and support them. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. But I can't think of a better vacation, a better adventure myself than signing up for something like this. Because, I mean, okay, you're going to pay a little bit more money than what you would be maybe for a guided tour 
but you have the opportunity to raise the money, involve a whole bunch of people. And then the, the philanthropic part of it is, is just massive. Giving away that bike, you know, and having that experience of uh, helping somebody like that, you can't put a price on well, that. Well, really. you can see by your participants that you've had, they, they, they all get very emotional about this. And so th this yeah. is something that obviously really touches people more so when they go and they actually have the experience of being on the rally and then giving the bike over to the rangers. Yeah, well, we'll save a spot for you, Jim. Um, be happy <laughs> yeah. to do that anytime. Tom, it was great to sit down and talk with you. I just love what you do. I really do. I, mean, I, I love the idea of Rally for Rangers and, and I hope you, you stay at it and I hope the thing grows like crazy. Yeah, I appreciate that, Jim. And again, a Rally for Rangers, the documentary film is out now. It's premiered. It's making the rounds on the festival circuit. So keep an eye out for that. We'll be showing it at a number of events and venues across the country this year. And uh, look forward to people, you know, connecting with that story through film. And, and I did get the the sneak preview of the film and very impressive, like beautiful job. Obviously you've got the right company for it. Fisher Creative is phenomenal. They did tremendous work and I'm um, really proud. And, and again, talk about contributing. They have contributed so much to this effort. Really excited to get this out there and, and, uh, and have people see it. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you, Jim. I was speaking with Tom Metema from Rally for Rangers. The website is rallyforrangers.org. Make sure you drop by and check out this new film. I've seen this new film. It's really, really well done. I think you're going to really enjoy that. We've got some great photos of the adventures that they do at Rally for Rangers in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to the Rally for Rangers website, all at adventureriderradio.com. Yeah, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and the Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you. Thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show. Now, if you're not doing it already, can I ask you to drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you at Adventure Rider Radio sticker for your pannier, your toolbox. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. And we would really, really appreciate it if you consider becoming one of our patron supporters so that we can count on you being there every month. The show is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. The more support we get, the more things we can do with the show. Anyway, if you'd uh, just have a look, I'd really appreciate it. Well, it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Sterling Noreen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!